0: Hey everyone, Pastor Blake Harkup here from Bedrock, Sarasota. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome you to our podcast. We hope that you get to know God more, that you feel encouraged, and that you see how God's moving in your life from a brand new perspective. Enjoy today's message. How's everyone doing? Y'all having a good night? Alright, I'm excited to get into God's Word. If we've never met before, my name is Blake. I'm one of the pastors here at Bedrock. I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you in just a little bit after service and kick a kickball at you later on. Um, it's a great way to meet you. I'm sorry I hit you in the face. My name's is Blake. Um, and so tonight we're going to be continuing on in our series called Essentials. And we as a church have kind of been going through this journey where we are talking about not only how we got through our mental mess, but now that our mess is a little bit cleaned up, we have some mess of relationship that we need to clean up as well. And so we decided to go into a series talking about kind of what are these pillars or essentials for godly relationships. You know, God created you and I to be in relationship, and so there's some ways that God has for us to do that. And so uh, tonight we're going to be jumping into our next uh, pillar and I'm so excited about it tonight. In fact, um, in order to get prepared for the message uh, this week, I had to do a little bit of homework. And how many of you are familiar with the show Friends? Anyone familiar? Okay. So my wife is obsessed with Friends. Okay. <laughs> Friends are her friends, okay? And um, as we kind of started dating, I didn't, I mean, I watched it here and there and things like that. I wasn't really into it. But this show, Friends, really impacted Kelsey's life and and so many other people. Um, uh, I watched, we watched The Reunion, like it's on HBO Max, and they're kind of talking about the anniversary. It's been 17 years since they were off the air. And listen to this. They've been watched over 100 billion times. 100 billion times. Episodes have been watched. My wife probably has half of those in there. But, um, as I was thinking about the message tonight, there's you know there's this really famous part of Friends. Okay, there's this season where um, Ross and Rachel, if you don't know, they're they're this these two people and they're kind of off again, off again, can't seem to get it right the whole time. You're kind of rooting for them, like please would you just like get married and be happy, but they can't seem to do it. And there's this really funny kind of skit or scene where, and they reenacted it last night in the um, in the anniversary. And and they were talking about whether they were on a break. So if you know what I'm talking about, raise your hands. Were they on a break? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, okay. The room is split. Okay. We got a problem. Um, and so Rachel writes this letter to Ross that's 18 pages. And if you know, front and back, right? Front and back. Okay. And there, there's this, and Ross like tries to read this letter and she basically like tells Ross it's all his fault. And he's kind of like, it's not your fault. He ends up dating a girl or something like that while they're on a break. Well, Ross doesn't read the letter. She wakes up the next morning. She's so excited that Ross, like, kind of took all the blame in this, you know, predicament, and she thinks everything's good. Well, come to find out he didn't read it. They get upset, and they they don't get back together at that time, and and it's a big issue, right? And as I was watching this kind of interaction and remembering the story here— I think there's really one essential that both of them were missing that really would have saved their relationship and probably caused none of the issues, right? And when you think about that, that you're like, "Wow, what is the secret sauce to Rach, Race, Rach, Rachel and Race, uh, <laughs> Ross and Rachel?" If you can't tell, I've been a little tired this week. Uh, and so, what, like, what would fix this? And I'll just tell you, humility humility would have fixed the whole situation, right? If Ross just said, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. Even if we were on a break, it's my fault. I'm sorry. And if Rachel would have said, you know what? We were on a break and it's not your fault. I'm sorry. They probably could have found reconciliation and moved forward in their relationship. And you know, the, the season ends, if you haven't seen it by now, it's 17 years ago. You've got to get on the ball. But uh, Ra- Rachel gets off a plane. She doesn't go across the ocean or whatever. And the story ends kind of with them in an apartment. And then we're all left to kind of wonder, what happens? Well, last night, they were like, what do you think would have happened to them? And they were like, I think we'd be married and have a couple kids. And they both kind of agreed. And I thought, man, you, you could have saved yourself so much more heartache and so much more complication, and so much more trial in their relationship if they just could have been humble in the beginning. And you know, in our culture, in, in our world right now, humility is not something that's really aired upon, right? In, a, in, in the culture that we live on and live in, it's, it's always pushing that you're the best, and you need to be the best, and even if you're not the best, you need to claim to be the best, Right, in fact, even this week I heard a story from someone very close to me who participated in this event and they won the event fair and square, but the person that they were competing against didn't think that every part of the event was fair, complained and they stripped this person that I know of of the award that they got and gave it to the other person. Instead of just being humble and saying, hey, you know what? I need to get better. I need to work harder. I need to participate more. They took the trophy from the person that they knew that could handle it and said, hey, we just, we're going to give the, this to this person so we can be done with this. And you think about that, and, and there's going to be this point in their life like that's what pride will do to you. See, because when we talk about humility, we're talking against pride. Why is that so important for us to understand? Because I firmly believe, and I'll argue with you if you want to about this later, but every sin that we find in the Bible finds its root in pride. Every single thing that you and I deal with in this world finds its root in pride. And you say, oh, Pastor Blake, I don't know about that. Well, the Bible says that we sin in the same way that Adam did. And what was Adam and Eve's sin? To be like God. What's going on with my mic? I feel like something's happening. Okay, and then... I was just getting excited. I might have hallucinated. Okay, and so, and then on the other side is this, and how did Satan tempt Adam and Eve to sin? In the same way he did. It was pride to be like God. And when you think about all of these other things that you and I begin to deal with, we begin and start with pride, and so so many of us start focusing on and trying to push against pride in our life, but you can't always focus towards the problem. You have to focus towards the solution, so instead of trying to kill pride, let's try to grow humility, because when we grow humility, we're able to kill pride, but some of us, were so focused on our problems and not the solutions in our life, and we wonder why we're not making progress. How many of us are stuck in our life because of pride? We don't feel like God could actually forgive us because our standards in our own mind are higher than maybe God's standards in his, and we can't receive forgiveness from God because we have a pride issue. Oh, God, you could do that, but I can't. It sounds like you're placing yourself in the position of God. Hey, that's great for you, God. I'm glad you can forgive me, but I can't. And God says, well, that's funny because I don't think you're the one that offers forgiveness. I do. Right? Psalm 51, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. So he's the only one that can offer forgiveness. And so, so many of us, I think pride is sneaky. Pride is really sneaky. And I'm not talking about, so this is what we hear when we say, push against pride, we hear have a low self-esteem. No, I'm not talking about that. When be humble means you're weak. No, actually, I think humility is one of the strongest attributes that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, can have in this world. Because humility really takes strength. I mean, anybody in here ever know you've been right? And the other person isn't right, and you're just like, oh, let me tell you. And then they're like, no, you're wrong. And you're like, okay, let me get Google out. Google! Google! You, right, you read it off fast. Hey, Cyrus, right? Like, hey, Siri, what's going on? <laughs> Y'all never seen that skit on SNL? It's uh, one of the funniest ones. It was called Amazon Alexa Silver, and it's uh, it's for old people. If you're old, I'm sorry. This might be offensive, but I don't mean it. But it goes to any, it, it will answer to any name that's close to Siri or Alexa. So the guy's like, hey, Cyrus, and it's like, yes. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Okay, so... I'm getting off track. All right, Lord, help me. And so we find ourselves in this moment of life where we're so, like, even if someone doesn't agree with you and you know that you're right, you have to prove them wrong. Like, why? Like, parents, why are you arguing with your five-year-old about who's right? Just live in the confidence of knowing you're right. You know, when I talked to that person who the award got taken away from, They were were like, this has been the hardest week, and I gave them Psalm 73, and I said, read through the Psalm, when the wicked seem to prosper, what do I do, O Lord? And I said, but here's the incredible thing. You have the greatest gift, because you already know now that you have the ability to win. You already know that you're better than those people, and that doesn't mean you take pride, but you can take confidence in who you are and the ability that you have and what God's given you, and so you don't need to fight back right now. God's gonna fight for you. And we're going to go to a book in the Bible tonight, and we're going to make our way through the entire book. You're like, oh, okay, it's going to be good, all right? But this book, it's in the Old Testament. We're going to look at it maybe from a new angle that you've never seen it before, if you, if you ever have seen it. It's this book called Esther. So we're going to head to the book of Esther, and we're going to be going through the book, and we're going to be jumping around. We're going to go in order, but we're going to be hitting a few different spots and looking at this idea of humility, but I gotta catch you up in the story. We're gonna spend the majority of our story right in the middle of the book, our time tonight. And so I have to kind of let you know about what's happening in this book. So Esther is written about this group of Jewish people who are living in this area called Susa. This is after the Babylonian captivity. In fact, about a hundred years after the Babylonian captivity. And so this group of Jewish people decided not to go back to Jerusalem, but they decided to stay in Susa, and this king named Xerxes is ruling in Persia. And so what happens in this time is that the Jewish people weren't being necessarily persecuted, but they weren't of the highest order. But here's what's interesting about the book of Esther. Here's a bit of Bible nerdology. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, The name of God is never mentioned in the entire book. That's really like interesting because it should pique our interest. And here's why I think it's so important for our discussion tonight. Because I think one of the reasons that you and I struggle with humility the most is because we don't see God working in our life. And when we don't see God working in our life, we have to, in pride, take things into our own control, in our own hands, and begin to work things out for our own good. So it's really hard to walk in humility when you don't see or believe that God is working for your benefit. I believe God graciously and in divine wisdom chose that his name would not be mentioned in the book, but his fingerprint and his activities are all over it. And I think that's such a gift for you and I because that's the perspective that you and I have most of the time. Like the the perspective that you have in your life right now is that you're seeing God work but you're not necessarily seeing his name. Right? And I don't know about you but when I get stressed out and things don't seem like they're gonna go my way I wish that God's name would be printed in the direction I should go and on everything that I should see but we are not a people who live by sight. We are a people who live by faith. And so I believe we struggle with humility because we don't see God working, and Esther shows us what it looks like when God's working and his name isn't mentioned. I think this is gonna be an incredible night for us. Right, even think about Adam and Eve. When they couldn't see God in the garden, they were tempted because their future was unknown. And the enemy said, see, you don't know the future. You want to be like God. You want to know everything like God. So they got freaked out, and they didn't see God working in the moment. And because God's name wasn't written somewhere, they fell. So many of us, I think, deal with that. And so that's what's going on in the background of this book. The name of God is never mentioned. So Xerxes, in the book, he's a bit of a partier. Okay, he's a real big partier, okay? Because there's 365 days in a year. In the book, when we get into it, he's just at a 180-day party. Can I say that again? Not a 180-hour party, a 180-day party. That's a flex, right? If you can throw a 180-day banger, you're the man, okay? And that's what he does to show who he is, We're going to have 180 days of party. And then he's like, you know what? That's not enough. I need another banquet. Bring all these people in my house. Everybody, bring them into the kingdom. We're going to throw a seven-day party. We're going to top it off. Icing on the cake. 187... That sounds exhausting. Can I be honest? Anyone else tired? Like, 180 days. I can't even take 30 minutes. I'm winded. Right? And so what happens here is this party happens, and then Xerxes wants, one of the ways that, that people showed they were so powerful, and, and, and kind of their status was, he said, look, my wife is beautiful. Look at the clothes she wears. Look at all the jewelry that she has. Come out here, and, and come and show yourself to the party, because she threw a separate party for the women. She refused. She refuses. No, I'm not doing that, okay? So Xerxes, he gets a little hurt. He's a little drunk, and he gets a little hurt, and we all know how that th- goes together, and Xerxes is like, you know what? Find me another woman, I'm going to make her my wife, and I'm going to get rid of her. There's going to be a new queen. So they have a beauty contest. This is no joke. Like, this is legit a soap opera, okay? There is a beauty contest. Esther enters the beauty contest. Listen, they have to go between 6 and 12 months. 6 and 12 months of, like, beautification process. Like, what the heck is going on? All right, 180-day parties, seven-day banquets, now six to 12 months of beautification. Okay, here we go. So this happens, and at the end of the party, at the end of this beauty contest, Esther wins. And when Esther wins, she's taken from poverty into becoming queen. And when she does that, this incredible thing happens. She actually hides her nationality. So she doesn't, she doesn't lie. She doesn't say, oh, I, I am Persian. No, she just says, like, nothing. She just is there. Well, she has this cousin named Mordecai. He's another part of the story. And Mordecai is this old believer, incredible dude, and he is at this party when Esther arises as queen, and he hears two guards say, I'm sick of this Xerxes. Let's kill this joker. And so Mordecai hears it and goes, these dudes are going to kill Xerxes. So he runs to Esther, and then Esther tells Xerxes, kills kills these dudes, and Mordecai (laughs) saves the day. And right as that happens, this guy named Haman shows up. Everybody say Haman. Haman. Not Haman, (laughs) Haman. Say it with a little country, Haman, right? (laughs) Haman arises, and he begins to really butter up the king. And Haman, he's an old Canaanite. He comes from Cana. If you know like the old time, like Babylonian Canaanites, they they intermingled, okay? And he rises to the second highest position in the kingdom. And see, Haman has a bit of a pride problem. Haman wants every person in the kingdom when Haman walks around to bow down and kneel before Haman. So Xerxes signs this decree and says, yep, everybody needs to bow down to Haman when they see him. Mordecai won't do it. Mordecai refuses to bow down. And when that happens, Haman has a hissy fit, okay? Haman gets real upset. So Haman goes and talks to all of his buddies like, yeah, man, it was a great day, but then this one dude named Mordecai, he wouldn't even bow down to me. And all his friends are like, oh no, he didn't. Let's kill him. And Haman's like, yeah, let's kill him. And let's kill all the people he's connected to. See, Haman found out that Mordecai was Jewish and says, you know what? Let's kill all the Jews. They seem like a problem people. Let's get rid of them. So Haman goes to Xerxes and says, hey, man, I'd like, this guy wouldn't bow down to me. He's got a problem. I'd like to kill him and everybody, that he, like everybody, the whole nation. Xerxes is like, okay, cool cool, okay. And and Haman says, I'll give you 10,000 talents, and I'll put it in the treasury. Xerxes is like, you know what? I don't even need that flow. You just keep that money that's yours. You just go kill him. Mordecai hears about this story. Mordecai hears that because of him and him wanting to stand up, notice he didn't spit on Haman. He didn't rebuke Haman. He didn't scream at Haman. He just refused to bow and stood in the confidence of God. Now, the whole Jewish people in Persia were gonna die. So Haman freaks out and he begins to go and he runs to the king. Well, he really tears all of his clothes and goes out and begins to cry. So we're gonna jump in here and now in chapter four. But see, like I said, throughout this whole story, we do not see. God's name mentioned, but we're going to see God moving the entire time. See, we're going to take a look at how humility preserves not only us, but our relationships. We're going to see in this story how Mordecai and Esther respond to the imminent danger that is ahead and how God is going to preserve them. And so, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to enter into the story here in chapter four. So, Mordecai, he begins to stress out and he begins and he goes out to the city with a bitter cry. He tears his clothes and he's out there and he's crying. And Esther hears about her uncle who is so stricken and crying. And so, in verse four, we're going to see how humility begins. See, in this series, we've covered two pillars so far. The first pillar to incredible godly relationships is forgiveness. Forgiveness. When we're able to forgive ourselves and others, we're able to show compassion. This piggybacks immediately off of our last pillar. Humility and compassion go together. It's very hard for you to be compassionate and forgiving towards people when you're stuck in pride. And so Esther hears this story, and listen to what happens in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about where Mordecai was, the queen was deeply distressed. Say, deeply distressed. Oh, that wasn't you convinced. He's deeply distressed. He tore his clothes off, right? Say, deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. Hmm. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. I want you to notice something about humility. Humility starts with compassion. As soon as Esther sees the distress, the the anguish on Mordecai's life, she immediately is filled with compassion and in humility from her standpoint goes to help reach Mordecai. Why is this such a big deal? Do you remember that Esther concealed her background? She didn't say that she was Jewish. So, why would the queen all of a sudden go help a person who was Jewish who was mourning in this moment? Do you see how Esther had to act in humility and put her own best interests aside to help that of Mordecai? See, compassion and humility, they run together. But the story goes on really quickly from here. So verse five, it says this, Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. See, humility always makes the first move. Humility, because you're not so worried about your pride, your standing, who you are, immediately in compassion begins to make the first move. It makes the first step towards people. And you say, well, they don't deserve it. Well, good thing we're not operating in pride. Good thing God didn't operate in pride. Because you and I were not deserving of Jesus Christ, but he came anyway. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, not when we got all cleaned up, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Do you see how humility and compassion make the first move? Jesus coming down to earth was the first move. Immediately, Jesus entered our situation. And so what happens here is there's this dialogue between Mordecai and this eunuch. And he begins to tell him what's going on. And Mordecai begins to tell Esther through this, you know, kind of the middleman, hey, look, I heard about this plan by Haman. Haman is going to kill everybody. He's going to kill all the Jews because I wouldn't bow down to him. And Esther's like, "Uh, well, what what do you kind of want me to do about that? Like, she's a little bit freaked out. But see, here's what I need you and I to understand about humility. You were made for this. You were made to be the person in the moment who is going to speak and be humble. Because we can't wait on the whole world to get better before we start acting in humility and compassion and forgiveness. See, God, I've told you in this series the whole time, the onus isn't on everyone else, the onus is on us. Because you cannot change the way anybody else behaves. But let me just tell you something, the way that you behave will affect the way that others do. See, you can't say, JT, change. JT, be nicer to me. JT, love me more. But I tell you what, if I'm nice to JT, and I love JT, and I care for JT, I guarantee you, after a while, it's going to be reciprocated. Because we've talked all in this series about this idea of collateral grace. See, the reason why you and I, were made for this, is because the grace that we have received from Jesus Christ in salvation can overflow into the lives of other people. You are made for this. Look at this incredible phrase that Mordecai tells Esther as she's freaking out, starting in verse 14. Mordecai says, look, if you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Notice Mordecai's faith. Look, Esther, if it's not gonna be you, God is gonna raise somebody else up. God is going to save his people. But look at what he says to her. But you and your father's house will perish. He says, look, if you don't do this, you're not going to be okay. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Look at what he says. Who knows? Maybe you became queen and into the kingdom for this exact time moment. What Mordecai says is, you were made for this. You were made for this moment. And so, starting in verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, nights, or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I want you to notice something that's so incredible about this. You were made for grace. You were made for humility. What, what? See, this is where the God fingerprint is in the story, isn't it? Mordecai, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, says, Hey, maybe the reason you became queen at a time such as this was to intervene for God's people in this moment. You only need to humble yourself. See, because we all think like humility is meekness and you walk around like, oh, I'm half dead. Meekness is, humility is standing in the strength of God's power. See, humility is you standing in the presence and the power of God and not pushing back. You'll allow God to push back, but you're gonna stand firm in confidence in who God is. You're not going to push back. You're not going to revile back in humility. You'll accept the blows. You'll accept these things. Notice what Esther says. I'm going to go. She was told not to go back to the king, that she couldn't go back and speak to him. And if she did, it was likely death. And she says, Okay, I'm going to stand in the confidence of God. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. But I will do all that I can to save the people. Humility requires vulnerability. Let me say that again humility requires vulnerability. In order for you to be humble and to walk in humility, you're going to need to be vulnerable. But what we're going to see in this story, and when you stand in God's presence and stand in his control and stand in his powers, yes, you may be vulnerable, but when you're standing in him, you're also protected. The Bible refers to this all the time, that when you act in pride, God opposes you, right? This comes from Proverbs chapter 32, that God opposes the proud. What that literally means visually is God stiff arms the proud, Stiff arms them. But when we are humble in how we approach God, the Bible says that God lifts them up and exalts those who are humble. But notice when you're exalted in humility in God, whose hands are you in? His. So when you act in humility, you're in his hands. So whatever comes your way, no, this is my child. I will not let you destroy them. I will not let you harm them. I will not do this. See, because your pride in the moment's gonna say, what about your life? What about you? Those people, they're awful. Why would you even help them? Why would you even do that? Those Democrats are terrible. Those Republicans are disgusting, right? Like, those people over there, awful. That's you exalting yourself above other people. Jesus says, when you humble yourself, I will lift you up, and I will exalt you, and I will also protect you. See, some of us are leaving the protection of God and the one thing in this world that can actually save us because we're walking in pride. Although pride doesn't look like pride, it looks like survival. I told you that pride is sneaky because it shows up looking a lot like survival it looks like you making sometimes the wise decision according to the world standards. Humility says, be still and know that I am God. So in this moment, I mean, even think about this. Think about how vulnerable Esther makes herself in this moment. She's about to go walk to the king to make this request about the Jews, and she fasts for three days. Anyone in here ever Fasted? Hands up. You're like, five minutes, okay. I fast every day from between breakfast and lunch, and between lunch and dinner, and then second dinner, and then between second dinner and breakfast, I fast every day. Okay, I'm so spiritual, right? Let me ask you something. When you were about to go into the biggest moment of your life, facing possibly the largest obstacle of your life, wouldn't your pride tell you you need to eat a good meal you need to eat all these things that make you feel good. You're going to need your strength. You're going to need your rest. You better not just eat. You better eat good things. In humility, Esther says, I cannot do this unless I do not live off of food but spiritual food. And so I'm going to fast for three days. And I'm going to ask that you do the same so that I, I, my body doesn't need to be strong. My soul does. And so in humility, she submits herself to the process of God and walks and fasts. See, when we're about to go into a fast, how many of y'all, you're about to go into a fast so you pig out three days before? You're like, I'm about to fast, so let's, uh, let's hit up Ruth Chris, then we're gonna need to go to Krispy Kreme, the light is on, right? Like, I'm about to fast, I'm so spiritual. Someone get me some Taco Bell, right? Like, you do that, right? Because you're what? Your pride kicks in and goes, this is gonna be hard, this is gonna be terrible, you're gonna suffer, so get it all now while you can because when you don't have it, it's gonna be awful. You're missing the spiritual blessing of humility and going, God, this is going to be terrible. God, how am I going to do this? I'm going to make myself low. I'm going to trust you. And I believe that I'll get through this fast because you will lift me up and you will exalt me. And my soul will be nourished. And I won't need the physical nourishment right now. It's a trust moment. See, so what happens here is Esther then goes out into this moment and she she does this really cool thing. The beginning of chapter five, look at what it says. On the third day after this fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. So she kind of like walks into the king's palace. She doesn't go and approach him, she, in humility, stays outside. I mean, how many of us, if you're about to get, have all your people killed, would be barging in demanding a meeting? I need a meeting. You're going to kill my, like this guy Haman's about to slaughter everybody. I got to get in there. But through the spiritual discernment, through the fast, she learned that she needed to go outside and she needed to stand in front of the king and not barge in. Do you see what humility and trust that takes on the Lord? Lord, I'm not going to force this. I'm going to trust you. Some of you are trying to force God's plan now. And let me just tell you, that blessing that's ahead of you will be a curse if you force it. Be like Esther wait outside the room until God shows up. But God shows up. And when the king, verse 2, saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Ooh, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. See, humility, it has some results in our life, right? So we know now that You were made for these moments. You're made, like right now, you're made to be an Esther in your relationships. You're made to be a Mordecai in your relationships right now. Who in your life needs you to be the person of humility? They don't deserve it. Do it anyway. It's about trust and faith in Jesus Christ that he will exalt you, he will lift you up, he will do what is right, he is righteous, he is pure, he is holy, and he knows everything that they don't deserve, but thank God he's not a God who gives us what we deserve all the time. But see, when we act and walk in humility, it invites some things into our life, and humility invites grace. That part of the story where she stands out in front of the king's chambers and patiently waits even though the matter is urgent is where grace entered the situation. See, Esther was granted a presence with the king. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace enters the situation when we walk in humility. How many of our lives need grace to enter the situation? And so Esther goes into this story, and she begins to talk to King Xerxes and says, look, I want to throw a party for you. I have a request. I humbly ask if you would do that. And Xerxes goes, look, you ask anything up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says, okay, I'm going to throw a dinner for you, and can you invite Haman tomorrow night for dinner? He's like, yeah, sure. No problem, Queenie. Right? So she, what do you think his nickname for Esther was? E, yo, E, no problem, all right? Like, we're going to get you dinner tomorrow. You got it. You're cooking? All right, great. I'm bringing Haman. So Haman shows up, and the story gets really good. But see, God intervenes between these two stories. See, humility is really about a push-up, not a pull-up. A push-up, not a pull-up. See, so many of us want to pull ourselves up to where we need to be. So many of us want to pull ourselves up into God's blessing. We want to pull ourselves into where we're supposed to be. And God says, no, no, no. You don't live a pull life. You live a push life. You're not pushing. I'm pushing. Look at what happens in the story. So Esther, she gets freaked out. She's like, look, tomorrow, even humility to wait one more day the humility to wait one more day. Well, look at what God is doing in the background of the story. Starting in verse six. So they're gonna go have this, this uh, meal tomorrow and on the na- that night, the king could not sleep in verse one. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that were read before the king. If you remember, when I talked about the background of this story, what did Mordecai do for Xerxes? He saved his life by telling him there was a plot to kill him. But remember, Mordecai never asked for anything in return. (laughs) Like, Mordecai didn't say, "Uh, hey, I saved you. Hey, I like told on those bad guys, you're really rich. You're not going to help a brother out? Okay, right? Like, so... Mordecai doesn't do anything like that. Because Mordecai walked in humility, he just did what was right and didn't expect anything in return for doing what was right. How many of you are doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason? See, pride will turn the right thing into the wrong way. I'm gonna do the right thing, but I'm expecting something in return. Hey God, I'm gonna tithe tonight. You see this? I'm expecting a blessing. And God says, the blessing is that I'm freeing you from the love of money. Oh, and when you're free from the love of money, then you'll be able to handle more of it. We think, oh, when I give the, the tithe, I'm going to get tenfold in return. Jesus goes, well, you won't need tenfold in return because you'll be so free from the love of it. You see, that's the real blessing. We don't ask you to give in here because, well, we love it when you give so we can help other people. You guys realize that we sponsored three kids to go to camp this summer? You realize that we've helped families out? You realize that when you give, we've cleaned this building? You realize that when you give, we're going to paint these walls this summer, and we're going to replace the bathrooms? Uh, Thank you for being a generous church. Because when you're generous, we get to give. And guess what? You'll love what happens because you're free from the love of money. So you won't be like, well, what's that church doing with that money anyway? You're going to be like, you know what? I believe in the God who I gave to, and I believe he's going to take care of it. You'll be free. You see how that takes humility? Pride will be like, I'll pay for that project because I got to know where my money's going. Humility is, God, it's yours. So we need a push up, not a pull up kind of life. And so what happens is, is the king, remember, Mordecai saved the king. Verse two, and it was found written, notice how this guy just opens up to the page in the Chronicles that talked about how Mordecai saved the king. Remember, God's name's not mentioned, but I see his fingerprint. Verse two, and it was found written how Mordecai had told that Bengatha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on king, on the king Xerxes, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So guess who's in the court getting ready to go talk about killing Mordecai. In fact, Haman has already set up a place, a stake, not a way to hang him like we know hanging. He wants to hang him on a stake. He already has prepared the place in the king's palace, the court, to kill Mordecai. And King Xerxes says, hey, who's out in the courtyard right now? they say, oh, Haman's out there. He says, bring Haman in here. And he goes, hey, Haman, I have this really special dude that really needs a really special honor. So I want you to get my horse. And I want you to get some of my robes. And Haman's like, it's me. And he's like, this sounds like a good idea, king. This sounds real good, king. And king, and the king goes, I want you to go find Mordecai. Haman's like, what? You want me to go find who? I want you to go find that guy Mordecai. Remember, he saved my life. See, and what happens is, is that Haman has to go get Mordecai, dress him in the king's robe, puts him on the king's horse, and parades Mordecai around the city. Oh, but the story gets better. See, it's a push-up, not a pull-up. Haman the whole time is trying to pull himself up into position. The whole time, Mordecai and Esther are walking in humility, and God is pushing them up. You see how God works here? You see in this moment, Esther didn't jump into here and say, He's about to kill my people. I need you to do something. She waited in humility. Mordecai, when he saved the king, didn't ask for anything in return. He walked in humility. And look at what's happening to these people they're being raised up. Mordecai is experiencing the protection of God. And so, what happens? Haman does this, and he gets freaked out. He has a little bit of an issue. He goes, and he takes Mordecai, and he does this. And the next day, the king is drinking again. Remember, he's a real partier. And the king is drinking, and he goes, hey, look. um, Haman, come in here. You're going to meet with Esther, and we're going to have this banquet. Well, Esther, right before the king comes in, says, I know about your plan. And Haman freaks out. Haman really freaks out, and Haman is like, I don't know what to do, and he begins to fall on the queen, and Xerxes walks in and goes, what are you doing? And Esther says, he made a plan to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. And then when she fall, when he falls on Esther, he says, what are you trying to do to the queen? And he goes, hey, there's a stake out in that yard, put him on it. And Haman dies on the very same stake that was meant for Mordecai. You think, oh man, that's brutal. Well, that's what pride will do to you. See, we see two very different people in this story. We see Mordecai and Esther and Haman. The king's irrelevant in this story, to be honest with you. He's just drunk and hanging out, okay? <laughs> but notice what Esther chapter 7, verses 9 to 10 says. After he heard about that, the, the, sto- the story to kill the Jews, and he fell onto Esther, One of the eunuchs, Arbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Oh. See, Pride builds its own downfall. Some of you are watching people in your life do things in pride and you're wondering why they're prospering. And God's saying, they're not prospering, they're building their own gallows. Just stay humble. Stay in my presence. Believe that I will take care of you. See, the poison of pride is what will lead to your own destruction. See, Haman needed to be worshipped. Haman needed to be right. Haman needed to do this and it destroyed all of his relationships and it ended up destroying him. And in humility, Mordecai and Esther with the king and the other Jews acted in humility and it preserved them and unified them. See, what humility does, here's what humility does. It counts others' best interests above your own. Humility makes the first step. Humility focuses on your part of the solution, not everyone else's. You cannot change or fix anybody else, but can I just tell you, through the power of Jesus Christ, through the testimony of your salvation and seeing God work in your life, when you move in humility to what you need to do to make it right, other people are affected by that. Let me just tell you something. It's always right to do the right thing. It's always right to do the right thing. So you're going to count others' interests more than your own. You're going to take your first step towards whatever you need to do. You're going to focus on your part of the solution and not wait on them. And then you're going to trust God will move. Do you see how Esther and Mordecai did that? The whole time they did this. And here's what results when humility reigns. Grace for you and for others. Notice that the grace that fell on Esther when she acted in humility saved her life. But who else's life did it save? Mordecai and the Jews. See, we've talked about collateral grace. When you walk in humility, other people will receive grace. Why? Because when you're humble, you won't always give other people what they deserve. They're beneficiaries of your humility. Why can you be humble? Because you remember who saved you. See, you can have for, offer grace to others. The result of humility is that you'll be pushed up, and not for your own praise, but for your own protection. You notice that when you're lifted up, you're lifted up for protection. Everything down here can't get you. But also, you'll be saved from destruction. See, pride builds its own destruction. See, the rest of the book of Esther follows in this story that not only then was Haman killed their greatest enemy, but the decree to kill all the Jews was reversed. And not only was it reversed, they said that, hey, on the day that you were supposed to be slaughtered is the day you can defend yourselves, is the day that you'll be okay. And so because of the humility of Esther and Mordecai, the entire nation of Israel in Persia is saved. Let me just See, here's the deal. Humility allows rescue. Humility allows rescue. See, God rescued Israel in this story. God rescues the Israelites. Notice that they didn't have to fight for their own rescue, God did it. When you act in humility and you allow God to do what he is going to do, you allow God to rescue you. How many of you are wondering why God isn't rescuing you, but when God shows up, you're like this, I got it, I got it, I got this, okay? I'm, you made me so strong, God. God, you've given me so many talents, God. You've given me so much money, God. I got it. You know what God's doing at that same time? JT, come up here. I'm not God, but I'm, like, in this scenario, it kind of works out. So you resist me. I'm trying to help you. Resist me. Oh, cool. You want to do that? That's fine. God resists the proud. God exalts the humble. You see what just happened here? He rescued. That's exactly what God did for the Israelites. Thank you. So while you're stiff-arming God, God's arm is a lot longer than yours and he's stiff-arming you. While you walk in pride, God says you want to walk towards your own destruction, I love you enough to let you fail. I'll be here to pick you up when you do. See, the key to humility is believing that God is fighting your battles for you. You have to believe that. You don't have to take things into your own hands because you believe you are in God's. You don't have to take things into your own hands because you believe that you're in his. Psalm eighteen twenty-seven says this, you save the humble and you bring, those, bring low those whose eyes are haughty. What God says is, while those who are trying to persecute you, who are trying to get you, when you act in humility and don't try to fight back yourself, God's gonna lift you up and push them down. God infinitely removes you from your problem when you walk in humility. So let me ask you as we wrap up this tonight, and we go get ready to kick, kick balls at each other. <laughs> Who are you in the story? <clears throat> See, we all want to be Esther, and we all want to be Mordecai. Can I just tell you? Jesus is Esther. Jesus is Esther. Jesus is the one who left the king's palace, who put his life on the line, and like Esther says, if I perish, I perish. And Jesus goes, I know that I will perish. I know that I'll die. I know that I'll be hung on the spike. I know that I'm gonna pay the penalty of sin for the people. And in humility, the Bible says that he was led to the slaughter like a lamb but did not open up his voice. Jesus is Esther. We're probably Haman, or maybe we're Mordecai. <laughs> maybe. Actually, you know who I really think we are? We're probably all the Jewish people who don't even know what's about to happen to us, just living our lives. Jesus is Esther. See, the end of that story is that Jesus turns the whole thing around. See, we said that pride brings its own destruction, builds its own destruction. Pride from the enemy and from Satan and from you and I built destruction for Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus Christ do to the destruction of pride? He overcame it through humility by rising again from the grave. Jesus took the one thing that the enemy had, pride, and allowed the enemy to kill himself with it. See, this one commentator, his name is uh, John Piper, said this. He said, the cross is where Jesus made death serve itself death. Because in humility, Jesus could walk to the cross and he could perish. He actually brought life to everybody. Jesus is the better Esther. Esther's incredible. I don't want to diminish her, but Jesus is the better Esther. Thank you for jumping into today's message, and we truly hope that you were encouraged. If you were encouraged, would you like and share this with someone that you truly love and care about? It may just be the thing that they need to get through this week. Also, let us know how the message impacted you, and please let us know any ways that we can be praying for you. But finally, I just wanted to take a minute to thank all of our supporters and those who give generously to make all that we have and do here at Bedrock happen. If you'd like to support us, you can do that really quickly by texting 84321 with any amount and setting up text to give, or you can give on our website. Thank you once again for all that you do, and we hope to see you soon.